let's just commit this to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Father, what we have before us is the living word of the living God. And we pray that we may hear your voice tonight, that you will speak to us through it, that you will show us more of the preciousness of Jesus. Draw us more closely to him. For any here who do not know you as Saviour and Lord, oh, speak to them, we pray, through your word tonight. The word of God, which is the power of God to salvation, to all who believe, bless and use your word now to your glory. Amen. Well, the first part of what was read to us is, of course, uh, I guess very, very familiar to most of us and any of us who, like myself, many years ago now went through Sunday school will have known the story from that time on. The feeding of the 5,000, as we call it. Like stories like Noah's Ark and uh, David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den. We're so familiar with the most of us from childhood. And they're crackling good stories. But for that very reason, we must not let familiarity with them make us take them for granted. We mustn't miss what this tremendous miracle that our Saviour performed is really all about and what it really says to us. Do you know, it's actually the only one of our Lord's miracles which is recorded in detail in all four Gospels. And that alone should give us some awareness of how important it is. And that we consider, therefore, why it has that place in God's Word, what it really means, what it has to say to us, what lessons it's got for us today. Not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. Not just something that Jesus did and, oh, that was great, that was wonderful, that was lovely. Why is it in God's word? What has it got to say for our own lives and our own faith if we are Christians today? Clearly it speaks of the sovereign power of the Lord Jesus Christ and that power is exercised in amazing compassion for human need. But what's the miracle really about? Let me stop there at once because I use the word miracle and the other three Gospels all use a word that does mean literally wonder or work of power or miracle. But John almost always uses the word that we meet in this passage and he calls them signs. Signs. In chapter 2, the, the changing of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana in Galilee, John writes, this beginning of signs, this first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Where our brother took up the reading in the second part of the chapter, Jesus actually rebukes the crowd that are following him, you follow me, not because you saw the signs. I mean, they have seen the signs, but... What they've seen hasn't registered at all. You followed me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and the fish, because you were satisfied and, and you know what you want more of the same. What is a sign? Well, in the middle of Liverpool, I wish they had a few more out coming this way, there are signposts all over the place telling you 
where this is, where that is, they're very helpful. They point the way to the Albert Dock. They point the way to Liverpool One. They point the way to the everyman. Signs point the way. They direct us to something. The signs that our Saviour did point to him. They say, look who is here. A sign signifies, it has a, a clear significance. And I want us to do two things tonight. I want us to look for a while at the sign, this familiar feeding of the 5,000, and then what it signifies, what its real significance is, what it actually says about Jesus. First then, the sign. Passover time, we're told, large crowds, at this time, flocking to Jesus. Ah, oh, but, but look at verse 2. A great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And then you read verse 26. I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So, are those verses contradicting each other? No, no. They saw, and yet they didn't see. Our brother Stuart Olliott is conducting a number of meetings for us in my church at Southport over a number of weeks. And recently he said, there's hearing and there's hearing. Well, let me adapt that. They're seeing and they're seeing. They saw the sign, they were thrilled at the wonder, and they wanted more of the same. But they did not see anything of what it signified. And there's a warning here straight away. If there's anyone here who's got a merely superficial awareness of, interest of, even attraction to Jesus, be warned. Have you really seen him for who he is? Do you know who this is? Who these signs point to? And yet knowing their hearts, knowing the shallowness even of their interest, he still reaches out in compassion for their need. He still meets that need wonderfully. I want us to see quite briefly three things. Faith challenged, love exercised, need satisfied. Faith challenged. The other Gospels tell us a little bit more about what happened prior to the feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus had been teaching and healing this crowd for hours. John, as we say, cuts straight to the chase. John goes straight in. Jesus sees a great multitude, verse 5, coming towards him, he says to Philip, one of the disciples, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Then we're told in verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Where shall we buy bread? How can we feed them? How can we meet their need? He's challenging the disciples' faith. Do they believe 
that he can meet this great need before them and will they look to him to do so? They haven't got any earthly resources that could even begin to touch this. In any case, it's a lonely, deserted place. There aren't any shops to buy anything, even if they had the money, but they haven't. That's what Philip's really getting at. Well, if we had all this money and we still couldn't do anything about it, it would take 200 denarii. Denarius was the equivalent of a normal working man's daily wage. 200 days' wages it would take to feed them, even if there were shops to buy things. And in any case, we haven't got it. In other words, Philip is actually saying, well, no, we can't do anything, can we? We can't get bread for them. We can't meet their need. There's nothing that we can do. It's, it's realistic from a human point of view. But you see what he does? He leaves the Lord out of his thinking entirely. He leaves the Lord out of his thinking entirely. And we can be like that, can't we? We look at a situation and we look at a problem perhaps, whether it be in our own lives, our personal lives, our life as a church and people, and we say, okay, what have we got that can help this situation, that can meet this need? And we, we look at our resources and so often we find them inadequate and in themselves we should. But do we really look to the Lord? Do we really anticipate that he has an answer and we must look to him to show it to us? And we're not to be unrealistic in any foolish sense. There's a great difference between faith and presumption. I, I had a senior deacon in the church I, I pastored uh, many years ago now in the Midlands and uh, he said to a, a certain member of his family who did have a habit of doing, shall we say, less than sensible things and saying, it's all right, the Lord will look after me. And my friend said, Arthur, you know what the word of God says. It says, trust in the Lord and do good, not trust in the Lord and act daft. We're not to be unrealistic. We're not to be presumptuous. But, but, as we look at any situation that we are faced with, that we need to meet, do we simply look at our own resources our own abilities, or do we look to the Lord? Sometimes he calls us to launch out in faith, trusting him. Faith challenged. And then Andrew produces this boy with, well, let's say his packed lunch, no doubt lovingly prepared by a good mum. And Andrew brings him forward. And to start with, Andrew offers, he says, look, there's, there's a boy here, verse 9, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. And I think there's a kind of instinctive impulse of faith there. An instinctive impulse of faith. Lord, there, there's something here. Can it be used? But if so, he draws back from it almost immediately. There's these five loaves and two fish, but, but what are they among so many? Lord, I'm sorry I spoke. Of course there's not enough here to even begin to do anything with. Why did I even mention it? Our faith can be a bit like that at times. It can reach out and then draw back. Maybe it was like that for 
Martha, in another chapter, chapter 11 of this same gospel, after the, the death of her brother Lazarus, and you may remember Jesus does not come immediately, Lazarus dies, he's been dead four days when Jesus actually arrives. And one of his sisters, Martha, as Jesus meets him, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And you think her faith is, is reaching out in an amazing way there. Just a few verses later, Jesus goes to the tomb. He says, roll back the stone. And the same Martha says, Lord, Lord, no, no. He's been dead for four days. There'll be a stink. What are we doing? Faith reaching out. Faith drawing back. What do we think of the ability of our Lord to meet a need that's way, way beyond us? Paul says he's able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or even think as we look to him in faith. This is the God who's promised he will meet all our need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4 verse 19. Just five little barley rolls and two small fish. In our terms we say a few tuna sandwiches. What are they among so many? And in themselves they're negligible. In themselves They've got no way at all of even helping to start to meet this need. But, but, they're about to be put into the hands of Jesus. And that will make all the difference. Are we really trusting him today? Are we willing to put our small resources, which in any case come from him, into his hands? Faith challenged, but love exercised. Love exercised his great love, his incredible compassion for the needs, even physically, of men. Takes the loaves and the fishes, verse 11. He gave thanks and he distributed them to disciples and the disciples gave them out to these great crowds of people and then the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, when were they filled? However, however was that possible? Scripture doesn't explain miracles. It records them in reverent faith. As Jesus took the five little rolls and the two fish and broke them in his hands after he blessed them, and sought his father. There was nothing less here, I believe, than new creation. That they multiplied and they kept on coming and they kept on coming and what had not existed before came into being in the master's hands. Now go way back to the very beginning of this gospel and you'll know these verses, I'm sure. In the beginning was the Word, the Word being the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. 
he was in the beginning with God, all things were made. Well, the New King James says through him. Other versions, by him, which I think is more than nub. All things were made by him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Here's the eternal word. Here's the Son of God who was the agent of creation. And here is that same sovereign power which made the world out of nothing, working in compassion and love for the needs of a crowd whose interest in him is only superficial. What amazing love. And we already see, don't we, something of what the sign says? Look who is here. Look who is here. God with us. Well, why did he begin with the little contribution from the boy? I'm assuming it was a contribution willingly given that Andrew didn't just pinch his lunch. He took the little that was there in his hands to show what he can do with the smallest of resources if they're truly yielded to him. As we look to him and seek to know his will, knowing we can't achieve anything of any moment in our own strength at all, are we willing to seek him in his word, to listen to his voice, to know his leading and to respond in faith? Love exercised in compassion for human need, and that's the same love he has for us today. Thirdly, briefly, of course, it's obvious, need satisfied. When they had eaten, when they were filled, a vast crowd, 5,000 men, women and children in addition, we don't know how many more than 5,000 there were in total, 10,000, 15,000, who can say? All hungry, all needy, all filled, all satisfied. My God will supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then we see he says to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain and they take up 12 baskets full. Far, far more left over than he started with. What's that all about? The Lord's supply is not just adequate, it's super abundant as he blesses his people. Remember the way Psalm 23 closes after those lovely verses that think about what it is to have the Lord as our shepherd. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Like a, a goblet of, of wine being filled and overflowing and it keeps coming and it keeps coming and it keeps being poured out. God's abundant grace keeps on giving. But let me move on quickly now to the second main point. We've looked at the sign. What did it really show and say about Jesus? Well, he tells us himself. 
We moved into the later verses of the chapter. A brother read from verse 25, the Lord's words to many of the crowd who'd followed him and the next day came to him on the other side of Galilee. And their interest is so superficial, they just want more bread, human bread, physical bread, more of the same. But Jesus says in verse 35, and this is the nub of everything that's here, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Now they refused at this time the meaning of the sign. That's what it means when he says, you you follow me, not because you saw the sign, not because you took it in, not because it communicated anything to you. You weren't interested, you wanted the immediate physical satisfaction and that was all you were concerned with. Like so many today. Well, you've eaten bread. I am the bread of life. The one active in creation we've seen the one displaying that power and compassion for their need. Bread. The the Eastern people call it the staff of life. The staff of life. It, It supports and it sustains life. But Jesus says, I am the provision and support and stay, not just of physical life. What I've come to offer you, what I've come to bring you, is eternal satisfaction of your need. Have you ever seen the somewhat strange idea, the bread of life, he that comes to me will never hunger. Okay, the image of bread, bread satisfies food, satisfies hunger. But he who believes in me shall never thirst. Well, bread doesn't satisfy thirst, does it? Not real bread, not your hobish, your mother's pride, whatever. It helps with hunger, it doesn't do much for thirst, you need something else. That's the point, you see, you need something else humanly, but you don't need anything else than Jesus for the satisfaction of your spiritual life and your soul. The image of bread in one way is too small, any image is too small. He gives full satisfaction. He meets every need. He that comes will Never hunger, he that believes will never thirst. The eternal satisfaction in Jesus Christ. I'm taking time, but let me very briefly, let me seek to bring this out, applying the same three headings I applied to the sign itself. Faith challenged, love exercised, need satisfied. Faith challenged, well, more literally here, of course, it's the the lack of faith that's challenged. The lack of faith of the crowd that follow for purely superficial reasons. You seek me not because you saw the sign, because you ate the bread, because you were physically satisfied. And he challenges that superficial, shallow attitude which looks at him merely as a wonder worker. They've benefited physically, and they just want more of the same. How many look at the Lord Jesus Christ in a completely superficial, inadequate, incomplete 
way. A great teacher, a great example, a moral leader, a guru of some kind. None of those actually declare who Jesus is. When he says to them, look, you're after the wrong things, he's saying, lift up your eyes from the needs of this physical life and see God's merciful provision for your greatest need, your eternal need. And that provision is and only is in Jesus alone. He says that in him they can have the food that endures to eternal life. And then that great claim we've looked at, I am the bread of life. And he's told them what it is that God requires. Look at verse 29. They've said, what do we do to do the works of God? They're, they're being really almost sarcastic to what Jesus has said to them. This is the work of God, he says, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in me, that you believe in Jesus, the Son of God. True faith in the one that he has sent to be the saviour of the world. I referred to Martha's grasping but hesitant faith in John 11. And in response, we know Jesus made another of these great claims. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. But then he challenges Martha directly. At the end of that verse, John 11, verse 26, do you believe this? It's not a general statement there. It's addressed directly to the woman, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you, Martha, do you believe this? Let me apply that challenge to everyone hearing this message today. Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus, the satisfier of our eternal needs. Jesus, the Saviour. Do you believe this? Do you believe he is truly the bread of life? Do you believe not about him? Lots of people believe lots of things about Jesus, good, bad and indifferent. Do you believe not about him? Do you believe in him? Are you trusting him? Are you looking to him as the saviour that you need for time and for eternity? That no one else can give you what he can give, no one else can meet and satisfy that eternal need. Those who want only physical satisfaction, give me more bread and fish. They refuse to see what they really need in Jesus. And they're a warning to us all. Martha could answer in that other passage, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. God grant that we, challenged by his word, can say, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe. And what wonderful assurance for those who do believe in that last verse our brother read, all that the Father gives me will come to me, verse 37, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Here's the wonder of the gospel. And so in that great gospel, which is exactly what's before us here, 
we see, to reapply that second point, oh, we see such love exercised. Such love exercised. The amazing love of God who sent his son. Believe in the one that he has sent. Why? Well, God so loved the world. The most familiar verse in this Bible, for many the most familiar verse in the whole Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, he gave Jesus. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his son to die on the cross, to offer his sinless life in the sinner's place. To bear our sin, the sin of all who would trust in him and take our punishment and the wrath of God, the judgment that we deserve, that he might bring us to God as we trust in him. The old hymn says, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. The coming of the Son of God in in his suffering, in his death on the cross, here is the greatest, most profound, most amazing, most unmerited love in the universe. Truly reaching down to us. John in his first epistle, later in the New Testament, says in this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Take those words that were spoken first to Martha again. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you know yourself, the sinner before a holy God under his just condemnation? But do you look to Jesus who has borne your sin, taken your judgment to bring you to God? Love exercised abundantly. Finally and briefly, summing up in a way all we've said, need satisfied. Not just physical need here and now, not just this fairly brief earthly life. Your soul's need. Your eternal need. Listen again to his words. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. No other can give us what he can. We need no other. He is all sufficient. He gives eternal satisfaction which will never end and never fail. This is the love that will not let us go. This is the Saviour who will never cast us out. God grant that we are trusting in him, knowing that he will and does supply all our needs for time and for eternity. The wonderful sign and what it truly signifies as it points to Jesus 
In both, we've seen a challenge to our faith. Do we believe this? We've seen God's great love reaching down to our need, love exercised. And we've seen that need fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. Oh, that we may be able to say with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and by grace, my Saviour. Amen.